Have you ever wanted to be bold, to be brave, speak up, take a new path in life, but you wish you had someone to walk beside you? This is A Voice of Her Own, a podcast about our journey to agency, authority, and action. Each week, you'll get inspiration, actionable practices, and support from me and from brave women of all kinds, walking their own path and telling their own stories. I'm Diva. I'm a trauma-informed coach and a doctoral student in psychology. So I know a few things about seeking an authentic life, but I'm still learning too. So join me as we support, encourage, and inspire each other. This is a podcast about showing up. This is a voice of her own. Well, hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of A Voice of Her Own. I'm your host, Diva Davison, and this episode is about the fear of happiness. So the first thing I want to say is I just cleared out the hay barn yesterday, and I'm feeling a little stuffy, so just bear with me. Uh, I may not be as chipper and upbeat in the vocal department as I normally am since I am allergic to hay, which is kind of ironic for someone who works with horses every day. So moving on. Uh, So about, I don't know, maybe three months ago, my partner sent me an article that said, unhappy childhoods lead to a fear of happiness. And I thought, duh, I mean, okay. But I actually didn't know anything about the um, the condition or um, I guess you might call it the um, characteristic or disorder. Um, it's actually a phobia, but at the time I didn't know that. Cherophobia. And this is actually an aversion to happiness. And it is not a DSM disorder, uh, but it is a phobia, and phobias are anxiety disorders. So most psychologists who talk about it talk about it as if it were an anxiety disorder. So at any rate, I thought, oh, well, let me guess, like, what else could lead to this? And it turns out there is a researcher from South Korea who is a professor of psychology, uh, and their name is Motion Joshin Liu. And I, I'll link to all the studies and every all of my research in the show notes uh, over at www.avoiceforown.com. Anyway, this South Korean psychologist has actually done quite a bit of research around this using a fear of happiness scale where where people self-evaluate on a scale of one to five or one to 10, depending on how it's utilized, different statements such as um, when I feel happy, I know something bad will happen or happy people are selfish or any number of different statements. And so mm, they study participants self-evaluated and rated the truth or, you know, their agree or disagree on a scale. And that's called the fear of happiness scale. 
So when I read this article, it turns out that this South Korean researcher found that there are nine predictors of fear of happiness. <clears throat> the strongest one being an unhappy childhood or the perception of unhappy childhood, which I thought was sort of interesting because if you have a perception that you had an unhappy childhood, then you had an unhappy childhood. Nobody can tell you whether or not you had a happy childhood. Only you can tell yourself whether or not you had a happy childhood. So I just find things like that sort of, they kind of rub me the wrong way, to be honest, because <clears throat> it's not a perception if it's something that you experienced. Your experience is your experience. People can't tell you something that's not true for you. Um, okay, so perception of unhappy childhood was the first. The second was perfectionism. The third was belief in black magic or karma. And the fourth was loneliness. And the other predictors were much less. So it focused on these. And I just want to back up because <clears throat> I thought that that was pretty interesting. Um, again, I thought that the connection with an unhappy childhood was self-evident. But when I started to dig into it a little bit deeper, I was really surprised to find out there's actually a lot of different forms of fear of happiness. And the reason that I wanted to do an episode about this is <clears throat> I was talking to my group of um, friends who are also in psychology, women friends, and um, one of them mentioned how she's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. <clears throat> and that felt very familiar to me. That is a form of hypervigilance. And essentially what she was talking about is that there's this idea that if something good happens to you, it's going to get balanced out by something bad happening to you. So you have this fear of like, oh, do I have too much good right now? Is the universe going to take some of it away? Is it going to bring me something bad? Um, and you actually see this belief much more in Eastern um, or um, Southeast Asia, India, um, cultures, traditional Asian cultures that are also collectivistic. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but they also have the uh, idea of balance being more important. So for example, in happiness studies, um, people <clears throat> in Asian countries tended to see happiness uh, if they were to predict it through their lives. They saw it as being a wave where it would come and go it would come and then it would recede. Whereas people in the West tended to see it as a steady increase in happiness as their life went on, if they were to predict what their happiness scale would be, what their happiness quotient would be. So when she said that, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop, I thought, yeah, me too. Like that's something that I do. And I realized like, oh, I should probably do an episode on fear of happiness because it seems that it's not just me. So another form of uh, fear of happiness is the idea that being happy makes bad things more likely because of, this is where the karma and black magic came in that I was talking about. So karma, i.e. things have to balance out. Um, black magic, because people will become envious of you. People will become resentful of you. People will want to take things from you. Your the, the people you love or your possessions or your animals or the, the things that you care about are more vulnerable because other people won't like you if you're happy. They will be envious. 
Um, and that's where the black magic comes in. Because even though here in the West, we don't have a tradition of black magic in many societies throughout the world, black magic is something that's utilized to take down your enemies. And so there's this pervasive belief that if you're not careful, other people will use black magic against you. And that's why, you know, um, there's the hand of Fatima or uh, other protective gestures or protective images that people use against the evil eye, which is another form of black magic, right? So, <clears throat> so that's another uh, fear of happiness. Uh, another fear of happiness, and this is the one that I relate to like really the most, the one that I think is deep-rooted a really challenging belief for me, which is that the loss of something that makes you happy is worse than having the thing that makes you happy to begin with. So when you get something that makes you happy, you immediately become extremely fearful that it's going to be taken from you. And I think that that, you know, again, going back to the quote unquote perception of unhappy childhood, if you had a childhood where, um, you essentially were in a non-secure, non-consistent um, situation over a long period of time. That probably happened to you, you know, enough times that you it you noticed it. And then I think secondarily, if you have uh, in. <clears throat> an anxious or uh, an ambivalent or a disorganized attachment style because of that, those things go hand in hand with being afraid of being happy. And what I have noticed um, is that this in turn goes really hand in hand with perfectionism, which if you remember here is one of the, um, it's the second actually top predictor of fear of happiness is perfectionism. And and what was sort of outlined in a lot of the articles that I read was that, oh, well, it's perfectionism because we're afraid of disappointing people and self-doubt and all this yibberty yabber, which I, you know, maybe that's true. I think all, a lot of these things go together. But I suspect that the perfectionism thing is that it is much easier if you start to do something well or something good comes to you, it's much easier instead of getting happy and getting joyful and letting your heart expand and getting a little bit excited or Twitterpated about it. It's a lot easier as a perfectionist to look at it and be like, it could be better. And I just need to put my head down and work harder. And that is often what I find myself doing. Somebody compliments me, somebody, you know, says, oh, that was a really good paper that you wrote, or hey, that coaching session really was helpful for me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not socially, you know, I'm not a social idiot, so I don't just say, what are you talking about? But I, you know, I, I say thank you. But, but in my head, I'm thinking, gosh, I have so much more work to do. I could do so much better. I just need to practice more, um, you know, that wasn't really anything um, new or useful that I said on the podcast. Like it just kind of goes on. And I think that those are all things stemming from a perfectionism that is a way of creating a distance between our cognition and our affect, between our brain and our heart, between what we think and how we feel. And it's a way of trying to control the amount that we feel, the amount of joy or happiness or glee or um, play, um, because it it creates anxiety. It it makes us afraid, and that is terophobia, the fear of happiness. 
And um, and before I talk about the problems with having a fear of happiness, like, hey, what's the big deal? Uh, I do want to point out that um, there are a few other ones. One is that being happy makes you a bad person. Um, it could make you selfish, arrogant, full of yourself, um, or it could make you a bad person because other people are suffering. What right do you have to be happy? So that's another form of the fear of happiness. And I think that's something that we do, mm, you know, pretty often, like the idea of I'm, what right do I have? I think if you just use that as your sentence stem, and then you can see that it applies to cherophobia and a lot of other things too. What right do I have to dot, dot, dot? You know, it's a great question to ask yourself, why am I using the sentence stem? Like what, uh, you know, where do I even get this idea of, of what I have a right to be or do or have or show or say or express or live? Uh, you know, that I think is a better question. So in individualistic societies, such as the United States, possibly the most individualistic society on the planet, happiness is seen as the end goal. It's like the ultimate goal, like your individual self-satisfaction is the most important thing that you should be focusing on. That's, that's our societal perception of happiness. Whereas in collectivistic societies, happiness isn't perceived the same way because often uh, service to community or family or um, to whatever group you're aligned with is seen as more important than your individual happiness. And the idea of sacrificing happiness in order to maintain or increase the well-being of your group is seen as a much more important goal. And so it does follow pretty obviously, and it's been shown by the studies, by the research I was talking about earlier from South Korea, that people in collectivistic societies rate higher on the fear of happiness scale. And that makes sense. Um, but I do think, you know, it's, and it's easy to say like, oh, well, sucks for them. But in fact, there are a lot of things in our culture as a result of our uh, relentless pursuit of happiness and self-fulfillment on an individual level that are causing widespread distress um, throughout our society. And it's pretty easy to see that there's too many people on this planet for us to individually pursue things at the expense of others. And when you have your own individual happiness as the ultimate goal, then that's essentially what you're saying is everybody else can just step aside. Um, I don't think that most of us intend to live that way. I think that for most of us, it's a balancing act. I think for women, it's often really challenging because we are, I think, conditioned to be more collectivistic in the way that we think. So we are constantly getting the mixed messages of do self-care, put yourself first, don't let anybody, you know, I'll, I'll, you've seen them all. I don't even have to tell you. Uh, with the message of, hey, make sure you care for others. Don't be selfish. Don't stand out. And and ultimately, it's just sort of a, it's so many conflicting messages that it ultimately leads to a kind of paralysis, I think. And I think a lot of women don't actually know what happiness would mean for them. All right, it's time for a shout out. 
So a shout out for me is something that I love, I use, I appreciate. I. It could be a person, it could be a product, it could be something that I am an affiliate for, but most of the time it's not. It's just something great that I want to share with you. So today it's Nuragan. Nuragan is a family-owned artisanal CBD producer. They're amazing. They produce super high-quality CBD products, and they use a very clean CO2 extraction process. They make it in small batches, so you never have anything that's sitting on the shelves. It's all fresh. It's um, an excellent customer service, excellent rewards, rewards program. We love their products. We use them for pretty much everyone in our family uses it. And let me explain. I'll break that down for you. I have been um, dealing with anxiety. Oh, probably, I mean, probably for a long time, but I've been cognizant of it for about the last six years. And I use their broad spectrum CBD tincture for that. And also for when I have muscle pain from typing because I'm a grad student and I spend a lot of time typing. So my partner is somebody who deals with insomnia. He is a former service member who served overseas. He uses Neurogan CBD gummies for his insomnia and it's super helpful. We have two elderly horses and one has navicular and they both have the joint pain associated with aging. We feed them the Neurogan horse hemp pellets to manage their pain. It's really effective and it doesn't have any side effects and I don't have to worry about any liver damage like you would with ongoing use of NSAIDs. So we also give the pet tincture, CBD tincture to our elderly lab who has hip issues and it helps her manage her pain. Same thing, no bad side effects, only good ones. So I highly recommend Neurogan. I love their products. They're super, um, again, like super responsive, great customer service. I asked them if I could use a referral code for anybody who was interested in trying, and they were super responsive. So if you'd like to get 25% off your first order, you can use the coupon code Equinox25, Equinox like Equinox Equestrian Coaching, which is my business. So Equinox 25, use it at checkout, get 25% off your first order at neurogan.com, N-E-U-R-O-G-A-N.com. And let me know if you try it and what you think, because I, I live in Humboldt County. So the cannabis culture is something I've known for ages and uh, I'm not really somebody who uses, and I've never really been impressed, and Nergan has been a big boost to all of us in terms of our health and well-being. Okay, that's a shout out. Because the definition is unclear, right? Is happiness contentment? Is it joy? Is it satisfaction? Is it well-being? Is it excitement? Is it fulfillment? Is it, you know, like, who knows? Uh, I think that we get fed a lot of ideas of what happiness is, and we tend to just take them on without actually checking to see if they actually meet 
our own definition of happiness. And I think that's really important to investigate. It could be that you have a fear of happiness, and I didn't mention this earlier, but one of them is that, um, and this is again more common in a collectivistic society um, that values the sort of formality of roles more than maybe we do here in the US, but the idea that too much happiness is will make you too emotional, you will lose some of your self-control and you will act in a way that is inappropriate. Um, or puts others at risk because you are too happy. And in a way that sounds silly, but you can kind of see where that's coming from, right? You can see that we've all had that experience of falling in love, for example, and how giddy you are and how, um, you know, gloriously silly, happy, like could, you know, hop down the street and, um, you know, it, oftentimes we find that those initial experiences of having a crush or falling in love or any of those things that really um, jack up all of our feel-good hormones uh, and chemical responses also contribute to a lack of rational thoughts and thought processes and uh, often do lead to decisions that aren't great. Um, not always, not everybody's had this experience. It doesn't happen this way for everyone, but many of us can remember doing something foolish that we later wish we hadn't done because we were in that state of goofy, giddy happiness. And, you know, it's one thing to do that when you're young, but as you get older, you fear that there are more repercussions or more consequences or there's more on the line and you have more responsibilities and less of a desire to look like a fool um, or to be taken as a fool. So it is, I think, another form of fear of happiness that we maybe become more susceptible to as we get older. So the idea that there is this aversion to happiness as a phobia or as an anxiety disorder, uh, it's just beginning to be studied, but it does appear to be comorbid, which means it occurs at the same time as uh, other, potentially other mental illness issues. And the most obvious one is that it is frequently comorbid with major depressive disorder. And one of the important thoughts about this is that the way that we go about treating depression is trying to willfully encourage people to be happy, like to be the quote opposite of depressed. But if somebody has a fear of happiness, if they have an aversion to happiness for any of the reasons that I've listed, all of which I think are extremely valid, um, even if they sound you know, silly from the outset, when you like unpack it and look through, you see that these are all really valid uh, understandings and beliefs and reactions. You know, Again, many of the things that we do uh, that we look at as being somehow um, outside of the quote-unquote correct response are just our own parts, our own survival parts trying to take care of us and prevent us from being hurt. So fear of happiness is another example of that. It's it's really your own, um, it's your own self, parts of your own self trying to prevent you from being hurt 
And it's important to remember that. It's important to remember that these are valid reactions. They might not be the reactions that we want now, and they might not be reactions that are useful to us in this season of life or in this stage or in this situation, but that doesn't mean that they're not valid. It just means that we need to find other ways of, of acting, behaving, perceiving, et cetera, in order to have something that's more appropriate for where we are now. And if we're going to look at depression and try to treat it, it's really important for those of us in the helping professions to remember that before we can ask people to be not depressed by being happy, we actually have to treat the fear of happiness and we have to dig into where that comes from. We have to investigate, is it because of, you know, a, um, disorganized or ambivalent attachment? Is it because of cultural beliefs that are in conflict, say, between a family of origin culture and the current culture that we're in, which is true for a lot of people in the United States, right? They're coming from cultures that are very collectivistic and they're being kind of shoved into this individualistic box without any way to bridge that. That There's a lot of complexity around what happiness means when you're in that situation. So I just wanted to bring all this up and kind of normalize the conversation and and talk about it because I think there's a relentless positivity that we all deal with. And like, I'm as much as the next person into, you know, positive quotations and reframing. I'm a big believer in reframing and, you know, trying to keep a positive mindset because I think mindset's super important. But I also think that we do ourselves a disservice when we don't look at the complexity of our own experience. And part of that complexity is the fact that happiness isn't always great. That's not always the best thing. It's like you can't eat cupcakes every day. It's just not good for you. You know, there are different forms of happiness that are appropriate for different times and places. It's up to us to decide what happiness means. And we need to be kind about unpacking whether or not we have a fear of happiness, if so, which kinds, where they come from, and what parts of that are useful and what parts are not. Once we are able to actually unwind all of these strands and look at it a little more clearly, then we can start to make some decisions about how we're going to move forward and add more satisfaction or well-being or happiness or joy or excitement or whatever it is our definition turns out to be into our lives. So I'm going to take a little break and when I come back, we'll have the takeaway. Okay, thanks for hanging out with me. So I'm gonna say the takeaway is based on the idea that cherophobia or aversion to happiness is an anxiety disorder because it's a phobia. Like I said, that's not a DSM definition. That's not, it's not an actual DSM disorder at this point. So uh, I'm not 100% convinced that it is an anxiety phobia. Um, only because I think that there is more than one way of looking at it and because I think there's more than one kind with different roots. But for the sake of this episode, I'm going to say let's lean into the fact that it's an anxiety disorder because the waiting for the other shoe to drop, 
at it as a form of hypervigilance. That would be an anxiety issue. And likewise, if you're afraid that if you're happy, somebody is going to come take it from you or something is going to happen that's going to take it from you, that is also a fear-based, anxiety-based issue. So one of the ways that anxiety issues are treated is through exposure therapy. And I have talked about this before in terms of horse training and how horse training taught me that anxiety expands or contracts depending on exposure. And what I mean by that is if you take a fearful horse and you limit that horse's exposure to scary things like <clears throat> loud cars or flapping tarps or um, I don't know, like anything that would spook a horse, um, you don't actually make that horse braver, even though it might be safer. In fact, that horse usually becomes more and more anxious and more and more spooky or scared or quick to um, have a fearful reaction. And on the other hand, if you expose the horse to scary things in a very titrated way, acknowledging what's happening with them the entire time, um, it used to be that people would just expose all over and wait for the horse to get used to it. And then when they did, they'd be like, great, the horse is sacked out, quote unquote, which meant that <clears throat> it wasn't having any reaction. But now we have a much better idea of what happens in the nervous system. And we understand that people can become just shut down and so can horses where they're not responding because it's not a matter of being brave. They're not responding because they're in a freeze state. So what we're looking to do uh, now is to gently titrate the exposure and to allow the nervous system to reset through every experience so that over time, and again, in a small, measurable um, way that involves a recognition of what's happening and a, um, not overexposing or overfacing the horse or the person, um, but in this case, we're talking about horses, that you gradually build on those experiences. And then eventually you get to a point where you have a horse that trusts that when something fearful happens, that past experience has shown that you can withstand it and that there will be a good result from withstanding it. And that's sort of how you condition yourself to get through things that are scary. You don't overface yourself by doing a whole bunch of it at once and putting yourself into a freeze state because either you're going to stay frozen, which isn't a great way to live, or eventually you're going to come out of the frozen state and then you're going to be in a survival state and that's not a great way to live. Um, so what you want to do is enlarge your capacity. You want to enlarge the capacity of your nervous system to, to tolerate the anxiety and to then regulate and reset afterwards. And if we were to look at the fear of happiness as a potential trigger of anxiety or hyperarousal of going over the so going over the window of tolerance, i.e., entering a place where you're where you're actively having um, physical symptoms of arousal, of being tense, scared, stressed, you know, ready to run, ready to freeze, ready to fight, 
any of those things, even if it's only a minor level, means that you've gone over your window of tolerance. When you look at what is currently recommended for the treatment of cherophobia, there's really standard things, and these things are standard throughout almost any of the subjects I talk about. One is mindfulness, being in the present, not worrying about the future, not feeling guilty or regretting the past, being in the present, um, being really aware of what's actually happening in the present, and being aware of the stories that you're telling yourself in the present about things that are happening in the present, past, and future. So mindfulness, another one is self-care. Um, making sure that you're getting enough sleep, that you're eating well, that you're getting exercise, um, you know, that you have supportive friends and family. If you remember, one of the um, predictors of fear of happiness was loneliness. So one of the things that we know is people need people. People need support. People need to be... Um, they need to have social interaction. We're social creatures. So that's part of self-care as well, making sure that you're getting the social interaction that you need. So all of those things are pretty standard issue. Hey, this will help. Um, and that's true. Those are all true. But I'm going to suggest that you start a little regimen of exposure therapy to happiness so that some of the things that you're telling yourself about it, i.e., if I am happy, I'll become an arrogant butthole. If I am happy, people will hate me. If I am happy, somebody will steal my stuff. If I'm happy, um, bad things will happen to me. You need to actively prove to your nervous system that that is not an across-the-board 100% truth that's going to happen every time. And remember, we have a negative bias. You know, when we look backwards and we're remembering events, because of our the way that we have evolved, we have a negative bias. It's more important for us to remember and fix our mistakes that might lead to us dying than it is to think back on the things that we've done well. And we've carried that bias into our modern society. And I feel like now it's just, it's a huge weight to carry around. Um, because it, it, it tells us so many stories that aren't actually true and it, it's so unhelpful in so many ways, but it is what we have. And so if we remember it and see that, then we can look and say, oh, wait, just because my memory is in childhood, every time I got a birthday present, you know, my older brother would clobber me and squash my birthday cake in my face that's probably not what happened every single year. I mean, maybe it is. I don't want to, if it is, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Chances are though, it didn't happen every year. It happened once or twice. And now you think it happened every time. And so now you've built up this idea that you can never be celebrated because if you do, people are going to resent you and then bad things are going to happen to you. You have to really ask yourself and it takes a lot of self-reflection to ask yourself every time you have these these reactions that are aversive to your own well-being, where did this come from? What actually happened? What are my memories? What, you know, what are, can I ask other people? Can I get other people's perspectives? That doesn't mean that they're going to tell you what you experienced. Um, but just to get some, you know, historical perspective, start asking yourself on a regular basis, what actually happened? What's the story that I'm telling myself? What does the story do for me? 
even when it's something that doesn't seem necessarily positive on the outside, it has some usefulness or you wouldn't still be telling yourself the story. It, it's giving you something and it's important to figure out what that is. So my takeaway is getting a little bit long right now. <clears throat> what I want to say is that giving yourself a small course of exposure therapy to happiness means choosing small acts of happiness every day. It means choosing them, choosing to do a few things that you know make you happy. You get to set your own definition of happiness. <clears throat> it could be something like, I had a Mexican hot chocolate today and I sat there and spent five minutes being incredibly mindful of how delicious it was. And I let myself experience it with all of the sensuality of my body and all of the appreciation for the glorious history of, you know, chocolate and how loved it makes me feel. Um, you could go for a walk and for five minutes be like, wow, this wind on my face, like reminds me that all of my nerves are alive and, and so on and so forth. It could be fixing dinner and having the moment of like, oh, these, you know, onions smell amazing. And I'm so grateful that we have a meal to eat together tonight. It could be when you finally settle in bed thinking like I have a roof over my head and I'm so like grateful to be warm. And so some of those like little tiny acts of happiness, I didn't mean to make them all about food. I'm Italian. That happens. Um, some of those little tiny acts of happiness, you can recognize them by gratitude. And so in your self-inquiry, in your journaling, in your writing and asking yourself questions about what's actually happening for you, a little sidebar is just your little gratitude practice of small things. You know, I'm so happy I have warm gloves. I'm so happy that I have hot water. I'm so happy that I have, you know, a partner who helps me raise our children and so on and so forth extrapolating that gratitude into in the moment, combining the mindfulness and the gratitude means that you can recognize and be present in an act of happiness. And just be with that. Make it small. Don't make it a big deal. Be with that. And then afterwards, let it go. And then check in with yourself a few, few times during the day and be like, hey, did a piano hit me? You know, is everybody still safe and healthy? You know, is everything okay? And actually give yourself some feedback on it and say, wow, I was happy today and everything is fine. I was happy today and I am still okay. I was happy today and my world is running fine or, you know, just as I expect or as I would like it to, whatever. Give yourself that feedback because you're trying to layer these new understandings that it's okay to be happy. You need to layer them because your, your fear of happiness is a very layered thing that happened over a long period of time. So start working on being the broken record that's layering that understanding that it is okay for you to be happy. It is not something you need to fear, that you can take care of yourself, and that you deserve it. I hope that was helpful. I am always really just so pleased that you took the time to spend with me today as I worked through this for myself. And I hope that that is something that you can take with you 
and I will see you next week. Hey friends, thank you again for joining me on A Voice of Her Own. I hope that this episode was useful, that it was inspiring, that it sparked something in you that you can take out into the world. And if you want to hear more episodes or you want to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss one being released, head on over to www.avoiceofherown.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can get all the show notes. You can uh, get all the links to everything we talked about and any promotional things that I have going on. So again, thanks for joining us and take that out into the world and be your badass self. Mm -hmm.